Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 11, Paying the Cost to Be the Boss, 1888. When we left Tesla last time, he was flying high on the success of his lecture for the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, and making ready with his business partners to cash in on the newfound interest in his patents. So this week, we'll look at just how that sale went down, and we'll emphasize the important part played by Tesla's business partners in arranging and negotiating the deal. I feel that this is important to emphasize, because another of the myths that has sprung up about Tesla, which his earliest biographies promote, is that Tesla was a one-man show in so many ways, including with the sale of his patents, instead of part of a web of people part of a team all dedicated to a common end. And as part of all this, we'll see how the investor and entrepreneur George Westinghouse came into Tesla's orbit, and how he would change Tesla's life, and ours, forever. In January, the National Geographic Society is founded in Washington, D.C. What began as a club for an elite group of academics and wealthy patrons interested in travel and exploration, has grown to today be one of the largest non-profit scientific and educational institutions in the world. In February, in West Orange, New Jersey, Thomas Edison meets with Edward Moybridge. You might remember Mr. Moybridge from episode 4, when we talked about his sequence of stop-motion still photographs called Sally Gardner at a Gallop, which demonstrated conclusively for the first time that all four hooves of a galloping horse come off the ground at the same time. Building on that interest in moving pictures, Moybridge proposed to Edison a plan for how to make a film that for the first time would include sound. As mentioned in our last episode, March 1888 saw the Great Blizzard of 88 along the eastern seaboard of the United States. Referred to as the Great White Hurricane, For three full days, from March 11th to March 14th, as much as 58 inches of snow, that's nearly a meter and a half, fell along a front stretching from Virginia to Maine and on through the Atlantic provinces of Canada. It shut down cities, halted commerce, made rail lines impassable, snapped telegraphs, and killed more than 400 people through cold and various storm-related accidents. At the same time, in a far warmer part of the world, De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited is founded in Kimberley, Cape Colony, part of modern-day South Africa. A merger of the companies of Barney, Barnado, and Cecil Rhodes, De Beers became the sole owner of all diamond mining operations in South Africa, and effectively had monopoly control of world diamond mining until well into the 20th century. Though competition has chipped away at De Beers' complete monopoly, today the De Beers Group still controls about 35% of the world's diamond production. On April 3rd, the Brighton Beach Hotel in Coney Island, New York, is moved 520 feet using six steam locomotives by civil engineer B.C. Miller in order to save it from ocean storms. In May, the Lei Aria abolishes the last remnants of slavery in Brazil. 
June sees Handel's Israel in Egypt recorded onto wax cylinder, using Edison's phonograph, at the Crystal Palace in London, the earliest known recording of classical music. August 1888 was a busy month. On the 5th, Bertha Benz arrives in Forsheim, having driven 40 miles, about 64 kilometers, from Mannheim in a car manufactured by her husband Carl Benz, thus completing the first long-distance drive in the history of the automobile. If you'd told them back then that people would routinely drive that distance twice daily to commute to and from work, well, they probably would have thought you were nuts. On August 10th, Dr. Friedrich Hermann Wolfert's motorized airship successfully completes the world's first engine-driven flight. I don't know anything about Dr. Friedrich Hermann Wolfert, except to say that of course a guy named Dr. Friedrich Hermann Wolfert would have a motorized airship. At 23 characters long, August 28, 1888, is the longest possible date transcribable in Roman numerals. It reads as V-I-I-I-X-X-V-I-I-I-M-D-C-C-C-L-X-X-X-V-I-I-I. Who needs an eye chart, right? On August 31st, the body of prostitute Mary Ann Nichols is found in the Whitechapel neighborhood of London, England. While in the 130 years since there has been speculation about earlier related murders, Nichols is considered the first official victim of notorious Victorian serial killer Jack the Ripper. Between her murder in August and mid-November 1888, a total of five women, all prostitutes, would be found murdered in Whitechapel before Jack the Ripper mysteriously vanished from history. The police and Scotland Yard were utterly baffled by the murders, and speculation about the real identity of the Ripper has created a thriving and profitable industry in Ripperology in the decades since. In September, George Eastman registers the trademark Kodak and receives a patent for his camera, which uses rolls of film. In October, the Washington Monument officially opens to the general public in Washington, D.C. Also in October, Louis Le Prince films the first motion picture, called Roundhay Garden Scene, in Roundhay, England. The whole film consists of 18 frames and takes about two seconds to watch. And at Christmas time, suffering from a bout of mental illness and having quarreled with his friend Paul Gauguin, Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh infamously cuts off the lower part of his own left ear in a brothel and is removed to the local hospital in Arles. Notable births in 1888 include, in January, Thomas Sopwith, English aviation pioneer and yachtsman. In June 1912, Sopwith and some business partners set up the Sopwith Aviation Company. By November of that year, they were building planes for the British military and would go on to produce more than 18,000 aircraft for British and Allied forces during World War I, including 5,747 of the famed Sopwith Camel single-seater biplane, one of the earliest fighter planes used in modern warfare. Sopwith would die in 1989 at the age of 101 years old. Also in January, famed American folk and blues singer Huddy William Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly, was born. 
In May, composer Irving Berlin is born. During his 60-year career, he wrote an estimated 1,500 songs, including the scores for 20 original Broadway shows and 15 original Hollywood films, with his songs nominated eight times for Academy Awards. Many songs became popular themes and anthems, including Easter Parade, White Christmas, Happy Holiday, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, There's No Business Like Show Business, and God Bless America. Berlin's songs have reached the top of the charts 25 times and have been extensively re-recorded by numerous singers, including the Andrews Sisters, Eddie Fisher, Al Jolson, Fred Astaire, Ethel Merman, Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Elvis Presley, Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, Linda Ronstadt, Rosemary Clooney, Cher, Diana Ross, Bing Crosby, Rudy Valley, Nat King Cole, Billie Holiday, Doris Day, Jerry Garcia, Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Ella Fitzgerald, Diana Krall, Harry Connick Jr., CeeLo Green, Michael Buble, Seth MacFarlane, Kelly Clarkson, Martina McBride, Lady Gaga, and Christina Aguilera. George Gershwin called him the greatest songwriter that has ever lived, and composer Jerome Kern concluded that Irving Berlin has no place in American music. He is American music. Irving Berlin would also live to the ripe old age of 101. In June, Antoinette Perry, a New York stage actress and director, was born. Perry helped found, and was chairwoman of the board and secretary of, the American Theatre Wing, which operated the stage door canteens during World War II, providing entertainment to servicemen in several American cities. After her death in 1946, her friends and colleagues memorialized her contribution to American theater by creating a series of awards to be given in her honor. Since 1947, the Antoinette Perry Awards have been given annually for distinguished achievement in theater and are one of the theater world's most coveted honors. They are universally known by their nickname, the Tony Awards. In July, Raymond Chandler is born. Making his name first writing for pulp magazines and later for Hollywood, he is considered one of the co-founders of the hard-boiled school of detective fiction. Also in July, T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, is born in Wales. Lawrence was an archaeologist, military officer, diplomat, and writer. He achieved fame for his role as a liaison officer during the Sinai and Palestine campaign and the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. In September, Archibald Bellany is born. Born in England, but immigrating to Canada in the first decade of the 20th century, it was there that Bellany adopted a false identity as Grey Owl, a half-Apache fur trapper. Living out this false identity for the rest of his life, Bellany, as Grey Owl, became a noted conservationist, writer, and lecturer. After his death, his fraud was exposed, leaving a very complicated legacy. Bellany, slash Grey Owl, is a fascinating figure, and if you get a chance, read up on him. In September, T.S. Eliot, British writer and Nobel Prize laureate, is born. In October, Eugene O'Neill, American writer and Nobel Prize laureate, is born. On November 13th, Philip Francis Nolan is born. He was an American science fiction writer and creator of the Buck Rogers character. Also in November, 
Harpo Marx of the Marx Brothers, is born. As was Edgar Church, a famed American comic book collector. The collection of comic books that he amassed is the most famous and valuable comic book collection in history. The collection consisted of between 18,000 and 22,000 comic books, most of them in high quality, and was discovered and bought in 1977 by Chuck Rosansky of Mile High Comics. The collection is famed for holding the highest quality copies of many Golden Age comic books, including the best-known copy of Action Comics No. 1, featuring the debut of Superman. Deaths of note in 1888 include American novelist Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women and its sequels, Paul Lagerhans, German pathologist credited with the discovery of the cells that secrete insulin, named after him as the eyelets of Lagerhans, John Pemberton, the American pharmacist who is best known for developing the recipe for Coca-Cola, and Rudolf Clausius, German physicist and one of the central founders of the science of thermodynamics. When we left Tesla last time, he was still flying high on the success of his lecture for the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. Having caused a sensation, first during the actual demonstration and then again when his lecture was published in all the major engineering journals, Tesla, essentially an unknown in the electrical community prior to that lecture, found instant fame amongst electrical engineers of the day. The lecture quickly became a landmark for its lucid description of an entirely new kind of motor. Engineers and the press were astonished at the originality, simplicity, and promise of Tesla's AC design. Dr. B. A. Behrend, commenting on the presentation, said, quote, Not since the appearance of Faraday's experimental researches in electricity has a great experimental truth been voiced so simply and so clearly. He left nothing to be done by those who followed him. His paper contained the skeleton even of the mathematical theory. All that was left then in the patent-promote-sell strategy of Tesla and his business partners was to sell. And for that, Tesla relied on the negotiating skills of his business partners, Alfred S. Brown and Charles F. Peck, two of the savviest businessmen out there, having won their stripes in the cutthroat world of the Gilded Age telegraph industry. Tesla initially hoped that they would sell his patents to the Mather Electric Company, since Tesla liked its founder, Anthony Mather, and thought that he would be able to improve on his motor with Anthony's help. While Peck and Brown did invite Mather to bid on the patents, not wanting to put all their eggs in a single basket, knowing how fraught any business negotiation can be, they also reached out at the same time to other electrical manufacturers. In late April 1888, before Tesla's lecture to the AIEE, and before Tesla made a lifelong enemy of Elihu Thompson at that same event, they offered the patents to the Thompson-Houston Electric Company, and Charles A. Coffin asked Elihu Thompson to review them. As we mentioned last week, Thompson had been tinkering with his own AC motor off and on over the years, though he'd not yet done away with the commutator in his design as Tesla had. Coupled with a personal aversion to buying patents from outside inventors, Thompson recommended that Thompson-Houston pass on the Tesla patents. Thompson considered Tesla's polyphase patents of such little value, he said they weren't even worth the required patent office fees. 
This reminds me of the story of the A&R man at Decca Records, who in the early 1960s passed on signing the Beatles, saying that guitar bands were on the way out. That same A&R guy, shortly thereafter, also passed on signing the Rolling Stones. And that's your fun fact for today. How some people keep their jobs is a genuine mystery. Anyway, turned away by Thompson Houston, Peck and Brown then approached the next logical player in the market, Westinghouse Electrical Manufacturing Company. Though a latecomer to the electrical industry, Westinghouse had decided to bet on AC rather than DC, and when he moved into an industry, he moved in hard. Westinghouse, in an age of cutthroat, no-holds-barred capitalism, was the antithesis of a robber baron, with some even going so far as to call him downright saintly in comparison to the Rockefellers and Carnegies of the age, although appearing saintly next to such men is a pretty low bar to vault, if you ask me. Unlike such men, Westinghouse didn't feel it necessary to buy up politicians or generally fleece the public as essential tools of success in business. Instead, Westinghouse relied on his wit, intelligence, and vision, as well as his business savvy and some good luck, to make his fortune. He routinely read the various electrical journals and trade papers, keeping abreast of the latest developments in the field, as well as an eye on what his competitors were up to. So, it's likely that Westinghouse also learned about Tesla's revolutionary motor and AC system before the presentation to the AIEE, given that Franklin Pope, editor of the Electrical Engineer Journal and a Westinghouse employee, had visited Tesla's Liberty Street lab at the behest of T.C. Martin. But it wasn't until Westinghouse read Tesla's landmark lecture that he sat up and took notice. Westinghouse's own chief electrician, Oliver B. Schallenberger, had been investigating rotating magnetic fields on his own. In April 1888, Schallenberger had accidentally dropped a small coil spring on an electromagnet in an arc light powered by AC. When the spring began rotating on its own, Schallenberger quickly realized that the rotating magnetic field was causing it to turn. Schallenberger recognized that his phenomenon could be used to create a watt meter and an AC motor. Because the Westinghouse company had a pressing need for a watt meter to measure the power consumed by individual customers, Schallenberger concentrated on developing the watt meter rather than an AC motor. Likewise, another of Westinghouse's staff, William Stanley, would complain later in life, and after George Westinghouse was dead, that once he eventually got a look at Tesla's motor, that he'd argued to Westinghouse that he, Stanley, had already invented such an AC motor, and demanded compensation. I have built an AC system on basically the same principle, he said. Westinghouse, rightly, turned him down. What Stanley overlooked was, that like Elihu Thompson's AC motor, he was still reliant on commutators and brushes, which robbed the motor of the efficiency needed to be a practical alternative to DC. Only Tesla's design was radical enough to drop the commutator. While Schallenberger's discovery was initially a cause for excitement at the Westinghouse company, it soon came to light that Schallenberger was not the first to discover the rotating magnetic field. Schallenberger had been beaten to this discovery by both Tesla and an Italian physicist, Galileo Ferraris. Westinghouse, once again scanning engineering journals, 
discovered a reference in May 1888 to an article by Ferraris in the Proceedings of the Royal Academy of Sciences of Turin. You certainly couldn't claim that Westinghouse ever lacked for a breadth of reading material. Ferraris's experiment had taken place in 1885, but he didn't actually write it up or get it published until 1888. And like Tesla, in early 1888, a month before Tesla's lecture, and even as Tesla's own patents were being finalized in the U.S. Patent Office, Ferraris gave a lecture in Turin, Italy, laying out his version of an alternating current motor. At this point, he and Tesla remained ignorant of each other or of their parallel work. Nevertheless, Ferraris outlined how he had created two out-of-phase currents, which turned out to be in a way similar to the split-phase motors Tesla built in 1887, except Ferraris had done it two years earlier. He suggested that this technique could be used to develop a wattmeter, but critically, he discounted the idea that his process could ever lead to a practical AC motor. According to Ferraris's analysis, when the cylinder reached maximum speed, the induced currents would produce equal amounts of mechanical work and heat, and, as a result, the motor would become inefficient and start to slow down. This was likely due to the use of copper as the central cylinder in his motor, unlike Tesla who used an iron core. Based on these tests, and Ferraris apparently never swapped out the material he used for his core, and his own mathematical analysis, Ferraris concluded that an apparatus based upon the principle of a rotating magnetic field can have no importance as an industrial motor. Despite Ferraris's contention, however, just to be safe, Westinghouse instructed his man in Europe to purchase American rights to the Ferraris patents, if only so that none of his competitors could get hold of them. Ferraris sold them to Westinghouse for $1,000, and probably thought he made out like a bandit selling a dead-end technology to some crazy American. At the same time that Westinghouse was buying up the Ferraris patents, his man Schallenberger was expressing his concern that the Tesla patents were broad enough and numerous enough that they might prevent the Westinghouse company from successfully developing an AC motor altogether. Westinghouse realized that without the Tesla patents, he might effectively be shut out of alternating currents entirely. He had to act fast. A week after Tesla's lecture, on May 21st, he sent Colonel Henry M. Bilesby, a one-time Edison engineer and now vice president of Westinghouse Electric, and Thomas B. Kerr, his general counsel, to Tesla's laboratory in New York. Bilesby was met first by Alfred Brown, a fellow engineer, who introduced he and Kerr to Peck. Then they set out to Liberty Street to meet Tesla, where Peck had Tesla demonstrate his polyphase motors for Bilesby and Kerr. Mr. Tesla struck me as being a straightforward, enthusiastic sort of a party, Bilesby wrote to Westinghouse, but his description was not of a nature which I was enabled entirely to comprehend. However, I saw several points which I think are of interest. In the first place, as near as I can get at it, the underlying principle of this motor is the principle which Mr. Schallenberger is at work on at the present moment. Bilesby noted that Tesla's motor required more than two wires, indicating that Tesla and Peck chose to hold back the split-phase design. After all, why show the customer everything all at once? Overall, Bilesby was impressed. The motors, as far as I could judge, are a success. 
They start from rest, and the reversion of the direction of rotation is suddenly accomplished without any short-circuiting. Playing it cool, Bilesby told Westinghouse, In order to avoid giving the impression that the matter was one which excited my curiosity, I made my visit short. After the demonstration, Bilesby and Kerr returned to Alfred Brown's office on Cortland Street to talk business. Undoubtedly drawing on his experience in the telegraph industry and selling mutual union to Jay Gould, Peck knew he needed to bluff Westinghouse in order to get the best possible deal. So when Bilesby and Kerr offered to buy the patents for Westinghouse, Peck informed them that one Mr. Butterworth of San Francisco, who was almost certainly imaginary, had offered $200,000 plus a royalty of $2.50 per horsepower for each motor installed. Further, they suggested that Cornell professor William Anthony, who had done the initial outside evaluations of Tesla's motor, was joining this syndicate. And, if that weren't enough, Peck added a ticking clock. Bilesby had until 10 o'clock that coming Friday to match or better the offer. The terms, of course, are monstrous, Bilesby told Westinghouse, but they replied that they could not possibly hold the matter over longer than the date mentioned. I told them that there was no possibility of our considering the matter seriously, but that I would let them know before Friday. Bilesby suggested that Westinghouse come to New York himself or send Schallenberger, but Westinghouse, who probably suspected that they were being played, told Bilesby to stall the Tesla group and try to secure better terms. At this point, Bilesby effectively called Peck and Brown's bluff. When Bilesby asked for an extension to consider the purchase further, Peck and Brown gave him a six-week option for $5,000. If they really had a $200,000 offer on the table from Mr. Butterworth of San Francisco, why take a lowball option and delay for six weeks? In any case, Westinghouse used the six weeks to begin serious consultations with his in-house engineers and patent experts. Despite Peck's high price, Bilesby and Kerr nonetheless recommended that Westinghouse buy the Tesla patents in order to secure broad coverage of the principles of using rotating magnetic fields. So, in hopes of forcing them to accept a lower price, Westinghouse dispatched his own star inventors, Schallenberger and William Stanley, to inspect Tesla's work and perhaps persuade Tesla and Peck that Westinghouse was in a stronger technical position and so that they should settle for a lower price and count their blessings. Schallenberger visited Tesla's lab on June 12, 1888, and Tesla demonstrated his motor operating on four wires. Schallenberger quickly recognized that not only had Tesla discovered the rotating magnetic field earlier than he had, but that he'd done what Schallenberger could not and used the principle effectively in a motor. Schallenberger returned to Pittsburgh and urged Westinghouse to buy the patents, despite the price being asked. Stanley arrived a few weeks later, on June 23rd. Peck knew that Stanley had a tempestuous relationship with Westinghouse, and that Stanley was a pioneer in AC in his own right. He had helped Westinghouse develop single-phase AC electric lighting by designing a practical transformer. But Peck also knew that Stanley had quite an ego, and was not disappointed when Stanley strode into the Liberty Street lab. No sooner was he in the door than Stanley announced that the, quote, Westinghouse boys had developed an AC motor and were way ahead of Tesla. Tesla and Peck 
we're ready for this. Peck had been worried that Stanley might be working on his own AC motor. As Tesla explained, Mr. Peck thought that Mr. Stanley was a man who would imagine that he had made the invention and might possibly come in conflict with me. To neutralize this threat, Peck decided that a good offense was the best defense. They had held back their trump card, and it was now time to play it. Rather than let Stanley's arrogance rankle him, Tesla demonstrated the polyphase motor and then simply asked Stanley if he would like to see the other motor too, the one which ran on two wires, the one that Tesla and Peck had not shown to Bilesby and Kerr. This was Peck's strategy to ensure that they could counter any claims by Stanley that he had invented a motor better than Tesla's. Seeing this second motor, Stanley was forced to admit that Tesla was indeed ahead of the Westinghouse engineers. As far as I know, every form of motor proposed by Mr. Schallenberger or myself has been tried by Mr. Tesla, Stanley wrote to Westinghouse. Their motor is the best thing of the kind I have seen. I believe it more efficient than most DC motors. I also believe it belongs to them. Kerr, the inside counsel for the Westinghouse company, reminded Westinghouse that unless he had a competing patent of sufficient strength and breadth, he would be powerless to move into the AC business. No pun intended. Time was running out on the six-week option. Finally, on July 5, 1888, Westinghouse wrote his reply to Kerr. I've been thinking over this motor question very considerably, and am of the opinion that if Tesla has a number of applications pending in the patent office, he will be able to cover broadly the apparatus that Schallenberger was experimenting with and that Stanley thought he had invented. It is more than likely that he will be able to carry his date of invention back sufficient time to seriously interfere with Ferraris and that our investment there will probably prove a bad one. If the Tesla patents are broad enough to control the alternating motor business, then the Westinghouse Electric Company cannot afford to have others own the patents. Perhaps the biggest point of contention in a potential deal was the proposed royalty of $2.50 per watt that the Tesla group had quoted. Westinghouse, having decided that he essentially couldn't compete in AC without the Tesla patents, wrote, The price seems rather high, but if it is the only method for operating a motor by the alternating current, and if it is applicable to streetcar work, we can unquestionably easily get from the users of the apparatus whatever tax is put upon it by the inventors. So here then, in writing, is Westinghouse's plan to pass along the cost of the royalty payments to customers. Remember this. It will come up again in a later episode, when Westinghouse will conveniently overlook it. And so, with Westinghouse's go-ahead, Kerr, Bilesby, and Schallenberger finalized an agreement with Peck and Brown. On July 7, 1888, they agreed to buy the Tesla patents for $25,000 in cash, $50,000 in promissory notes, and a royalty of $2.50 per horsepower for each motor installed. The Westinghouse company guaranteed that the royalties would be at least $5,000 in the first year, $10,000 in the second year, and $15,000 each year thereafter. In addition, the Westinghouse company agreed to reimburse Peck and Brown for all of the expenses incurred during Tesla's development of the motor. This was a very solid deal. In total, the agreement meant that Westinghouse would pay Tesla, Peck, and Brown 
$200,000 over a 10-year period. Over the life of the patents, 17 years, Tesla and his backers stood to make at least $315,000. That's the equivalent of $5 million to $8 million in today's currency. Not too shabby. Even if the California offer from Mr. Butterworth had been real, the Tesla Electric Company partners may have preferred to sell to George Westinghouse in any case. Westinghouse had developed a reputation as a fair but no-nonsense businessman who defended his patents ferociously. He had already sued Thompson Houston over their illegal use of his transformer and forced them to make a royalty deal. And he simply bought up United States Electric when they crossed him. This was a good ally to have in the cutthroat world of Gilded Age capitalism. Tesla very much admired Westinghouse's qualities as a businessman. He said once, quote, No fiercer adversary than Westinghouse could have been found when he was aroused. An athlete in ordinary life, he was transformed into a giant when confronted with difficulties which seemed insurmountable. When others would give up in despair, he triumphed. Had he been transferred to another planet with everything against him, he would have worked out his salvation. Tesla would also later say that George Westinghouse was, quote, in my opinion, the only man on this globe who could take my alternating system under the circumstances then existing and win the battle against prejudice and money power. He was a pioneer of imposing stature, one of the world's noblemen. Although it wasn't a condition of the sale, nor of the contract, Tesla agreed to come to Pittsburgh and work as a consultant for the Westinghouse Company, sharing what he had learned about AC Motors with the Westinghouse team of engineers. He would be paid the handsome consulting fee of $2,000 per month. Unbeknownst to him, however, he was walking into a hornet's nest of resentment, ego, and competing agendas amongst the Westinghouse engineers, at least a few of whom thought that Tesla and his patents had robbed them of their own giant payday. But more on that next time. So, as we close today, I hope you have a sense not only of how the deal with Westinghouse was made, but also of the part played by Tesla's business partners in arranging and negotiating that deal. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, I feel that this is important to emphasize, because of the Tesla as lone wolf genius myths that have sprung up over the years. For instance, O'Neill claims in Prodigal Genius, and Margaret Cheney, as she so often does, picks up the story uncritically in her book, Tesla, Man Out of Time, that George Westinghouse ventured to Tesla's lab to examine the AC motor for himself, and that the negotiation over the sale price and royalties happened then and there between just the two of them over the whir of the Tesla motors. But there is no evidence for this trip by Westinghouse. Indeed, the two men only met face-to-face for the first time once Tesla arrived in Pittsburgh after all was said and done. Nor is there any evidence for the direct negotiation that both O'Neill and Cheney claim happened between Westinghouse and Tesla. Both biographers leave out the vitally important role of Peck and Brown in setting up and negotiating for the sale of the patents to Westinghouse. For O'Neill, this is part of his agenda to make Tesla out as a solo superman of science. For Cheney, it's just laziness in picking up the story from O'Neill without checking other sources. The fact that Tesla himself valued the contributions of his business partners was evident in the division that they made of the windfall from the deal with Westinghouse. Tesla gave Peck and Brown five-ninths of the proceeds from the deal, 
keeping only four-ninths for himself. Tesla understood the essential role Peck and Brown had played in helping develop the AC motor by giving Tesla facilities and funding his research and development, as well as selling the patents for far more than Tesla would have managed on his own. Much is made, and not just in Tesla's case, about the myth of the lone inventor genius. In reality, Tesla succeeded, as do most successful inventors, in large part because of the support of the network of people he had around him. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it, or share a link to the show on your social media. I hope you'll go to iTunes or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more chance people who might not otherwise encounter the show will see it and subscribe. Thanks for your help. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, with updates and alerts about the show, links to articles, and other stuff related to Tesla, his life, and times. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.